Okay, folks, we're in Nahum. Nahum is the name. Nahum. Would you like to say that? Pete, not bad for a guy from Louisiana. Nahum. Oh, you're clearing your throat. Oh, great. Uh, never mind. I thought that was Hebrew. He was just clearing his throat. Nahum is where we are. Three chapters. We'll be in it briefly. And then First Timothy is where we're going to go, um, Lord willing, thereafter. Nahum. I won't tell you the background of the book because we'll get to it as we actually look at the text. So give you a moment or two to find it. It's near Micah. It's in, it's in Micah's neighborhood right after it. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. I'll read to you. Here's how it begins. The oracle... Or what do you have? The burden. Yours is excellent. Uh, The Hebrew word can be translated oracle or burden. When a prophet received a special message from God, it was called either an oracle or a burden. Burden, why? A lot of God's messages are burdensome. It's a burden for the prophet to deliver. It's a burden for the recipients to receive, as you will see. So the oracle of Nineveh. Nineveh, capital city of uh, the Assyrian Empire. So when you read about Nineveh, it's a representation for the entire Assyrian Empire. Quite a city was Nineveh, located in northern Iraq, near a place called Mosul. Mosul, M-O-S-U-L. I would never have heard of it. Maybe you wouldn't have, except that we've had troops there in Mosul. We've, we've lost some some of our military in Mosul. It's on the east bank of the Tigris. You've heard of the Tigris? Tigris and Euphrates. The land between those two rivers is called Mesopotamia, land between the rivers. That's where this is, Nineveh, big city. Archaeologists say it probably housed a quarter of a million to 300,000 people. Folks, massive. This is in the ancient world. Over a quarter of a million people had a wall around the whole thing, about eight miles around. Had The, the wall had 1,200 uh, towers. It was a stronghold. That was good news for the Ninevites, bad news for everybody else, because the Assyrian Empire was, was, was evil, absolutely, the, perhaps the most idolatrous empire in the ancient world. They subjugated peoples with such terror. They terrorized folks. It was unbelievable what they did. We have records. The annals of Assyria. It would just send a chill up your spine. So they had this stronghold, rather impregnable city, Nineveh, its capital city, which caused the subjugated peoples to lose hope. How could we ever be free from such an oppressor? This stronghold, you can't besiege it. We couldn't amass enough resources and armies to deal with the Assyrians. They lost hope. Even the Israelites who were besieged by the Assyrians, they just lost hope. You could get to a point where you can't see your way out. Maybe you're like that. I don't know. A Christian could lose hope. It's possible. We're human. You could get to a point where you're just so enveloped by strongholds, if you will. You can't even take it. You just think that's it. That's your death. there's no way out. So that was, that was kind of the, the situation. Do you know who the Bible says founded Nineveh? Anybody know? A guy named Nimrod. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11. It talks about Nimrod, not a good guy. He founded Nineveh. So anyway, that's, 
That's Nineveh. So this is the burden of Nineveh, meaning word of God through a prophet for Nineveh. And then it says the book of the vision. Does your, does your say the book of the vision, your translation? Most, any book is good. This is unusual. To my knowledge, this is the only Old Testament prophet whose prophecy is termed a book. The book. Some surmise because of this, this message wasn't meant so much to be preached as much written as an underground tractate, a pamphlet on scrolls. Uh, the prophet, not named yet, would receive this oracle or burden from God, inscribe it on paper, uh, scroll, roll it up, and then circulate it underground, even to the Assyrians. Why? Well, what was he afraid? Why didn't he preach? Well, because they're, under the, they're, under, they're being subjugated by Assyria right now. So this, would, this would be death, you see. So some say, I don't know if that's true, but some say. That's the explanation for this title, the book of the vision. Vision, he saw it. But he didn't see it with natural eyes. In order for a prophet to receive a vision from God means it's special, it's exceptional. It doesn't mean Nahum was smart or more insightful. No, he was chosen by God to receive a supernatural vision. Vision means what it says. It's something he saw. But don't overemphasize the visual nature of the vision. What it was was the word of God. He received God's words and wrote them down. You know why God didn't give us the vision he gave Nahum? Because he doesn't have to. He gave it to Nahum. Nahum wrote it down. You and I are reading it. So are there dreams and visions today? I don't know. You know, the older I get, the more I'm persuaded of how much. I don't know. It just doesn't bother me. I know this for sure. God doesn't really have to speak to us in dreams and visions to the extent he did. Why? Because the Bible's complete. So now he speaks to us through the words given by, to some in dreams and visions, and we read it, study it, talk about it, just as we are doing today. I didn't say dreams and visions don't happen. I, I don't know. I'm not the final authority. I just know they're not as necessary. I mean, you've got 66 books of Scripture, for crying out loud, to feast on. Okay. So then it says, uh, of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Ah, so now we know who received the vision, Nahum. You know what else we know about him? Nothing. <laughs> you just read everything. That's his biography right there. Elkoshite, that's not his tribal affiliation. That's where he's from, Elkosh. You know what we know about Elkosh? Nothing. We don't know anything. We don't know where it is. We don't know who he is. We don't know where it is. What's up? Well, it just tells me something about the Bible. It's not there to satisfy our curiosity. It's not there to tell us everything we may want to know. The Bible is there to tell us everything God wants us to know. What about the rest of the stuff? Wait to heaven. You'll find out. I can see us online, long line, waiting to get to the Lord Jesus seated on the throne. I'm so glad to be here. I've just been dying to ask you, where's Elkosh? You know what the deal is? You won't care and neither will I. You'd be in the presence, the reverie of being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. You're not going to think about this stuff there. Right. Anyway, this is his name. We do know this. His name means to comfort. It comes from a root word meaning to comfort. You say, well, what do you say? What, what's that, what's that name? Na- Nahum's name is to comfort. 
And you might say, as you'll see, how could such a harsh word of judgment comfort anyone? If it's a word of judgment against the oppressors, it would sure comfort the oppressed. Remember, the oppressed can't do anything to get the Assyrians off their back, but God can. So if God says that, that's a word of comfort. What's the application? Do you ever feel oppressed by being alive today? I do. You know, I read about the abortionist in Philadelphia. It's oppressive to hear what he did to children. The Boston situation. It's oppressive. The people, why didn't want to kill us? An eight-year-old boy? What's up? I don't know, just kidding. Things are, uh, what, what's, being hap- what's happening to marriage? You know, redefinition of marriage today. Nine states have legalized same-gender marriage. Many countries, one by one, Supreme Court's going to weigh, weigh in. I don't know, it just, just oppresses me. So if I get a message of victory over all of the forces of evil, I'm comforted. You should be too. I hope Nahum comforts you. Hang in there. There's a message of victory here. God's on the throne. Did you know that? Yeah, he's in control. He'll take care of things. In fact, here's how God is described. Verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. You know, because of that, people don't want to hang out with him. I'm serious. A lot of people say you can have the God of the Bible. If he's jealous, I don't want. What kind of characteristic is that? Those are people who don't know what they're saying. Though the same word is used of God as and us, God being jealous, we being jealous, it's entirely different things. Why does God then use, why does the Bible use the word jealous? This is another good thing about God. It's called accommodation. He accommodates himself even to our language. Did you know that? His lofty, profound concepts would not be receivable, comprehensible, uh, understandable to us unless he gave it to us in words, human like words. It's not just Jesus who became enfleshed. Even the, even the word of God is put in the words of man, right? And for instance, the, the, the strong right arm of God. You ever hear that? Does that mean God has a right arm? No. <laughs> He's using that. It's a language of accommodation. It's a way of depicting his power and his, you understand? So here when he used jealous, it's not the same. When we're jealous, it's because we want something that doesn't belong to us. You know, you get a, a, a nice car, you got a fancy car. Ooh, I'm jealous of it. No, when God is jealous, he wants what belongs to him. You know who belongs to him? You do. He's jealous. You know what this means? He doesn't want to share you. You ought to be flattered, not offended. Flattered. What would it be if a marriage partner doesn't mind sharing his partner with somebody else? Are you, what kind of message is that? You know what God says? Don't have any gods but me. You know what God says? I want you all for myself. Oh my goodness. Am I that special God? Yeah. To me you are. Oh God, I'm so glad you're jealous. You know what else God is jealous of? Not just his people. He's jealous of his attributes. Here's what I mean. If someone, a pretender to the throne, lays claim to what is only God's, God won't take it. No, no. Someone says, I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the Savior. I'm the Redeemer. Look to me. Submit to me. Worship me. Devote to me. God won't have it. Why, is he insecure? No, 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 no. He's loving. He doesn't want us going after false gods who lay 
claims before us that can't support. Why? Because false gods are going to disappoint us, let us down. Want to hear some false gods? Ancient Assyria had some leaders. Here's one, Ashurbanipal. Here's what he said. I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, the great gods. They magnify my name. They made my rule powerful. What kind of an egotistical, narcissistic... What? Esar Haddon, another Assyrian ruler. I am powerful. I am all powerful. (gasps) That's an attribute of God. That's omnipotence. Listen to me. You can't be doing that. You're robbing God of what's his. Only he is all powerful. You can't lay claim to it. Why? Some people are going to believe you and follow you instead of the true God. The true God doesn't like that. Why? Because that false God cannot meet your needs. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. Good night. It sounds like the guy in North Korea. You know what I mean? Or the guy in Iran. Names for today, folks. How do nutso people like this get to be uh, country rulers? This is unbelievable to me. The vote, whoops. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am, listen, I am without equal among all kings. I am the chosen one of Asher, Nabu, and Mart. You are chosen for the wrath of God. I didn't make this up. Look, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. On his children? No, on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. We don't like this. You know what we like? You know what everyone likes? God is love. God grades on a curve. God turns the other cheek. God doesn't have commandments. He has suggestions. God is kind. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. That's true. We like that. But we can get out of balance. You know what's also true? God is jealous and vengeful of those who are his adversaries. In fact, he reserves wrath for his enemies. See where it says he reserves wrath? You know what that means? His wrath is not unbridled like yours and mine. Listen to me. We drive home from church later. You're on 45. Some knucklehead cuts you off. There will be your unbridled wrath. You lose control. You go crazy. You hit the horn. You hit the lights. You shake your fist. You follow him home. You have a conversation. Whatever. And then later you say, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. He has a gun. <laughs> but this, this is human, unbridled. No, no, no. God reserves his wrath. You know what that means? He takes note of all this stuff going on, all these crazy people laying, usurping the authority of God, exploiting the people allotted to their charge, doing evil and all the rest. And God is waiting for the time, his time, right on time, when there'll be the outpouring of his wrath. He reserves his wrath. But, but if it's not unbridled, I have a bad day, you, you rub me the wrong way. No, no, that's what we do. But that's not God. Look, he's slow to anger, verse 3. He is slow to anger. It doesn't say he doesn't anger. It just says he's slow. To, he doesn't have an anger, pro, an anger management problem. He reserves it. He manages his anger, see? See, see the expression, the Lord is slow to anger? You want to know what, what it literally says in Hebrew? It says that the Lord is long of nostril. 
long of nostril. And that's how we get he's slow to anger. It's a, it's a figure of speech, long of nostril. Um, in uh, Hebrew thinking, the nostrils, when they flare, that's a sign of anger. But God's nostrils don't quickly flare. He's long of nostrils. You know, like a bull. Do you ever see an angry bull? <laughs> you know, and, uh, it, 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 I'm trying to give... <clears throat> that's not God. He's not long of nostril. He's, but here's the deal. Some people could misinterpret the fact that he's slow to anger as being weakness. And that's why it says, don't forget, he's great in power. See the two juxtaposed? He's slow to anger, and then very next, he's great in power. You see, because the Assyrians, the Americans, the everyone could think, I'm doing my own thing and getting away with it. Listen to me. The abortionist that was found out in Philadelphia doing these horrific deals, can I tell you something really sad? That's just, to me, the tip of the iceberg. We don't know what's... We don't, we don't have any idea. We, we have no idea the things we humans are... Humans in high places, even. The things are capable... The, heart says, the Bible says our heart is desperately wicked. We just see little incidents of desperate wicked. I mean, I think it, it's much more prevalent than we think. And so the evildoer can think, God of the Bible, you people talk about? Where is he? I'm getting away with murder. Literally, you see? Now, so you can misinterpret the forbearance of God, the reservation of God. Um, the fact that God is slow to anger, it could be misinterpreted to be the weakness of God. No, no, no. He is great in power. Listen, he's very patient. 150, 200 years before this, he sent Jonah to this place. Remember Jonah? Nineveh preached. Nineveh was so thrilled to be there. Uh, Jonah was. He was so happy to go. Remember that? <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm packed and ready. But anyway, Jonah went. He preached. People believed. But then they, they went back to evil ways. God gave him 150, 200 years to get with the program. He's long of nostril. He's slow. He doesn't fly off the handle. I mean, hundreds of years have gone by. Now it's pay-up time. And, and, and so it says, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Look, and now you get this, this fascinating uh, description on, of the omnipotence of not, not Esar Hadon, but the, but the, but, but the all-powerfulness of God. Look, in whirlwind and storm is his way. You know, the people in this day feared weather, wind and storm. Why? Unless you were really wealthy in Nineveh, you lived in a mud brick house. How hard is that to get blown down? You had a thatched roof. That's gone. Strong wind. Yeah, but, but that may affect you, Ninevites. But it does, look, but all that stuff is, is his way. I mean, he just, he just hangs out with whirlwind and storms. He just, He's unfazed. He's unscathed by. That's how powerful he is. Not only that, clouds. You know how clouds. You ever look up in the sky? Oh my goodness, clouds! Well, they're the dust beneath his feet. You're looking up and in awe. <laughs> they're beneath God. Not only that, he rebukes the sea. What? You know the ancients feared the sea. They didn't know what was on the other side. Is it like the end of the world? Is it like an edge? They didn't have topography they didn't, or cartography. They didn't map it all out. They didn't know what was going on. Stuff happens at sea. 
storms and, you know, turbulence. They don't know. But God can make it dry. He can rebuke it and make it. Not only that, he dries up the rivers. I think this is an allusion to at least two recorded times when he did. One, when Israel came out of Egypt. Remember the Red Sea? Two, when Israel is entering the promised land. Remember the Jordan River? He could dry up up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Bashan, ooh, fertile, beautiful place. Known for its real healthy cows. The cows of Bashan, it's in the Golan Heights today. Sarah, I'm talking here. We were at the Golan Heights. That's Bashan. You prayed there. You remember that? Bashan. Listen to me. It's, it's one of the most fertile places, not only Bashan, Carmel. Did we go to Carmel? Mount Carmel? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. Terry, did we go? So you remember Mount Carmel? It's like a mountain range along the Mediterranean. It's, it's fairly high. Gets a lot of rain, so stuff grows there. These are very well-irrigated, well-watered, fertile places. Here's a third. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Lebanon, in this case, not the modern-day country of Lebanon. It's another mountain range. The Lebanese mountains runs north and south. Again, roughly parallel to the Mediterranean Sea. Higher in elevation than the Carmel mountain range. So high, in fact, that they're often snow-covered. Snow melts. It comes down the slopes. It waters and wildflowers just occur, just like in Texas. Just, uh, just, just like bluebells and blue bonnets and stuff in Texas. Beautiful. But, 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 but is it blue, bluebell is ice cream, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Let's get some. <laughs> so here's the deal. Here are the three most well-watered places in Israel, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Don't count on it if God dries it up. That's the point. You know what the point is? Assyria. You think way too highly of yourself. I control the weather. The weather controls you. I control it. I can dry all this up. In fact, verse 5, mountains quake because of him and hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. And all this is meant to lead to these two rhetorical questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? The obvious answer, nobody. Who can endure the burning of his anger? Nobody. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. So here's what's happened. You can get scared about that. You get nervous. You could say, whoa, I don't want to be close to this God. I'm not comfortable. Whoa. I want to keep my distance. It's almost by anticipation. God has the prophet Nahum now stop the flow of this recitation of the awesome power of God. And you get verse 7. Addressed not to Assyria, but covenant people. You, me, look, the Lord is good. Relax. Take it easy. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold. Oh, I thought Assyria was the stronghold. No, 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 no. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Oh, that's like a breath. That's like, thank you for the reminder because I thought, you know, your wrath. Listen, the power of God's wrath falls on those who are his adversaries. The power of God's love falls on those who are his children. Take it easy. Are you a verse 7 person or not? Be sure. Be sure. 
He knows those who take refuge. You know, it's like, it's like you run to Jesus because something's going on. And uh, then you get to him and he says, uh, excuse me, have we met? Uh, do I know you? No, he knows those who take refuge. How does he know you when you take refuge in him? Well, the fact that you take refuge in him is an indication that he burst new life in you or you would not be running to him. If you're running to him, he knows you because he done burst you anew. You see, that's why he knows. Oh, I don't know. I'm troubled by something, but I don't know if I can go to God with it because he's... No, no, but he knows you. He knows you. Of course, you, you're his child, you're his son, you're his daughter. So verse 7 is like an oasis, you know, in this desert. And now back to reality, verse 8. This is back to the Assyrians now. But with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Hey, I want to ask you something. Verse 8. Does your translation supply anywhere in there Nineveh? So you have the New International Version, right? <clears throat> if you have the New International Version, you have a wonderful translation. Don't misunderstand. I'm not one of these guys who wants to rail against the translation. They, they have Each has strengths and merits. Some are a little uh, more uh, passionate about the right translation than I am. I, I would rather have you just you know, read a good translation, and I think that's a good one. But as they say, they all have strengths and weaknesses. One of the strengths of the NIV, in my opinion, is that it smooths things out for the reader. One of the weaknesses of the NIV is that it smooths things out for the reader. Because in the original text, Nineveh is not in there. See, so your translators have put it in for you. In the original, all you have is make a complete end of its sight. Whose sight? Well, the NIV people said Nineveh. They're right. They're right. But they supplied that. See, that shows you the strength of that translation. It's going to help you, the reader, to understand what's going on. But I don't want that help. I want it. And I'll tell you why. So, for instance, in the NIV, you'll get Nineveh in not only verse 8, but also verse 11, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 1, it doesn't appear in any of those verses. The first time it appears by Nahum is in chapter 2, verse 8. Why? I think it's on purpose to build up the uh, expectation. I'll tell you why. The readers are oppressed. They're Israelites and others. They feel dead to hope. They have fallen below the line of despair. Nahum brings a message of hope, of liberation, of judgment against evildoers. They can hardly imagine that they'll ever be liberated from Nineveh, from Assyria. Are you kidding me? And it's as if Nahum keeps them there just to, just to put on parade a display of the power of Almighty God, persuading the reader. Nineveh, as powerful as it is, pales in comparison to the power of God. So... I think it's a device. That's why I don't think Nineveh is actually mentioned until later. But it doesn't matter. With an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end. Now, that word end in Hebrew really means just what it says, a really complete overthrow of the city to the extent that Nineveh literally ceases to exist about 300 years after it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 612 B.C. 
the Babylonians, uh, in an alliance with the Medes, destroyed Nineveh. About 300 years after they conquered it, travelers to the land didn't even know Nineveh was there. Alexander the Great, centuries later, in his world conquest, Alexander the Great stood on the very territory of Nineveh and didn't know there was the Assyrian Empire beneath his feet because sand dunes had so covered it up. For almost 2,500 years, Nineveh was lost under sand dunes. Only in relatively modern times have archaeologists unearthed it and they're digging it up. Let me tell you something. When God prophesied, had Nahum speak his prophecy, one day I'll make a complete end of it, he ain't kidding Not only was that with precision carried out, you see where it says, but with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end. Overflowing flood. It could be a metaphor, but it also could be literal. Here's what I mean. The Babylonians and the Medes laid siege to Nineveh over months. They were not making progress. It was a major fortified city. But then the rainy season came. You have rivers, two rivers around Nineveh. They overflowed their banks. In fact, some archaeologists believe they have found evidence of the fact that the Medes may have destroyed one of the dams and accentuated the flooding of Nineveh. But for sure, archaeology tells us that the demise of this city was due to floodwaters. Just as God said here in Nahum's prophecy. Verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he'll make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. What does that mean? Assyria had besieged and subjugated Israel once. It won't happen twice. Why? Because God will make a complete end. Verse 10, like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. You see where it says, like those drunken with their drink? Again, it could be a figure of speech. A drunken person stumbles, is unable to resist, you know, confused. But it actually could be literal because in the annals of Assyria, we find out they were like, unbelievably notorious for um, in, uh, consuming huge quantities of alcohol. In fact, Assyria's a own inscriptions uh, uh, on its monuments and idols and so on show them at their banquets, but you don't you hardly ever see food. It shows them drinking, not eating. They'll be like a big thing, like a, like a punch bowl. And you have people, Assyrian people, seated around it, and they all have, they all have a cup. So it's possible that they they were so consumed by revelry and drunkenness that it made them even all the more vulnerable. Who knows? Verse 11, from you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor, which begs the question, who is the one? We don't know. It could be Sennacherib. It could be Ashurbanipal. It is, one, it is a Syrian leader as a representative for the Assyrian Empire, whoever it is. At any rate, verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they'll be cut off and pass away. Now, the people addressed now 
ceased to be for a second Assyria, and now they're Israel again. This is very typical of Hebrew prophecy. You've got to read it real carefully because those addressed changes in the same prophecy. So look, the audience now switches from Assyria to Israel. Look, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. That's a reference to the Israelites, not the Assyrians. Verse 13, so now I will break his yoke, that's the Assyrian yoke, uh, yoke bar from upon you, that's Israel, I will tear off your shackles, the shackles, a sign of subjugation, put upon Israel by Assyria. You know what God is saying? Israel, you got yourself into this through sin. You rejected me. You turned from me. You know what happens when that happens? You're on your own, Charlie Brown. Here come the Assyrians to beat up on you. I still had my eye on you. I'm not going to let them destroy you totally, but I'm going to let them bring you to the end of yourself for sure. Consider it disciplinary action, not destructive, destructive action. Well, it's run its course. Now I will deal with the Assyrians. You might say, God, that's not fair. If Israel blew it and you're using Assyria as the rod of your discipline, why are you blaming them? Ah, they're still culpable. I still think, I still think today my people are in rebellion against the Lord. And I think the nations around Israel are still imposing upon her all kinds of stuff. Now, I think it's due to the sin of my people, but I think those who bruise the apple of God's eye are going to be judged by him anyway. What's the application? What about us as a church, as Christians? You know, I don't think we're doing so hot. In terms of influencing the culture, I don't know. Sometimes I think there's more evidence that the culture has influenced us. I know we're supposed to be holy, called apart, but we have tried so hard to fit in. We've really succeeded. We just look like everybody. We live the same way. I don't know how distinct a people we are anymore. I just don't know. What's God going to do about it? Do away with us? Never. Discipline us? Yeah. How? Through the world system, through political entities, through I don't know what. But will they get off the hook? No way. I think we are and will receive the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father, which we should not despise. It is perfect us, not to destroy us. But I think those who impose hardships on us will be judged by our Father. I don't think anything's changed. So now back to the Assyrians, verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I'll prepare your grave. You are contemptible. Well, that happened in 612 BC. Again, Assyria was overrun by Babylonians and Medes. Nineveh was sacked. And within a few years, the entire Assyrian empire pretty much vanished from the earth. That happened. Folks, there's going to be a day. Hang in there. 
when evil influence and entities, which we really can't deal with effectively, will be, will be effectively dealt with by Almighty God who sits on the throne. Now, you happen to know him by name. He considers you to be his little children. Isn't that wonderful? But our Father is really, really big. Don't mess with God's kids, I guess is the message. And there'll come a day when he will do what he did then. That's just to typify the fact that though God is slow to anger, it doesn't mean he won't. He's angry. He's angry when his kids are put upon by evil entities and influences. He'll deal with it. But now you get this closing verse to give us a glimpse of what could be, what will be. Verse 15. This is my favorite. Behold, on the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. The writer, Nahum, is writing as if it's present tense. Look, people, to the mountains. Can you see the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace? Folks, it didn't happen in his day. (laughs) It's a future event spoken of in the present. It's called the prophetic present. It's actually a noticeable occurrence in the Bible. Prophetic present. What does that mean? It means a future event so sure of taking place. You can consider that that it actually happened. For instance, do you believe Jesus is coming again? Yeah, me too. Listen to me. His second coming is so sure of taking place. You and I can order our affairs today as if it's already taken place. There is victory in Jesus already. It's that kind of sense. So here's the deal. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. Wait. The people are saying, damn, what are you talking about? We're looking on the mountains. We don't see anyone bringing good news. You know what we see? The Assyrians. You know what Nahum says? Ah, yeah, that's your problem. You're only looking with your eyes. That's the deal. And your eyes are um, are filled with news. <laughs> your eyes are filled with current events. You watch the news. And the news tells you it's over. You're dead. Abortion is in. Same-sex marriage is in. Everything's in. Do what you want to do is in. You look to the hills and you see yourself surrounded by corruption and evil and ungodliness and increasing persecution of Christians worldwide. That's what you see on the high places. And names, ah, see, that's the problem. You're looking to the hills through the lens of current events. Look to the hills through the lens of God's declared word. And you'll see Beautiful feet, the feet of one who brings good news, in fact, who announces peace to such an extent that you, Judah, will be able to celebrate your feasts and pay your vows. There will be a day when God will so deal with those who rob you of peace that you will be able to give yourself to unbridled worship and devotion of Almighty God. You'll fulfill your vows to him. You can celebrate your feasts because the wicked one will not pass through you. He will be cut off completely. That's not happened. Wickedness is going wild. It is, I mean, it just makes your head spin. What's right is called wrong. What's called wrong, what's wrong is called right. I, you, don't, you, don't, you don't even, but there will be a day 
when that kind of thing will be cut off, don't you see? And they will be celebrated. That's in the New Jerusalem. Hope you're going to be there. That's when there will be unbridled, undistracted worship of Almighty God. Now, you see that that this verse, Behold, on the mountains, feet of him who brings good news. There's a parallel to it in Isaiah 52, 7, speaking about the Babylonians. But what I want to share with you in closing is that Paul takes this in Romans 10 and gives it an entirely different application. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Let me read it to you. How then will they call on him? in whom they've not believed, how will they believe in him whom they haven't heard? How how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, now here's a quotation by Paul from the verse we just read in Nahum and its parallel in Isaiah 52.7. Here's the quotation. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Of good things. You know what the application is that Paul's making? You should have beautiful feet. I should have beautiful feet. It's evangelism. <laughs> we should be the ones who bring good news of the gospel of peace. Peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus' Son, the mediator between God and man. We should be available. We should say, Oh God, would you give me eyes to see opportunities to tell people about you? He is the only hope. The world is becoming rather increasingly hopeless. We know the God of hope. It's such refreshing good news to tell somebody. There is outside help. And he's willing to come inside your life and give you hope and peace and goodness and love and joy and self-control. But there's something that obstructs the way. It's sin. Would you admit it? Would you confess it? Would you turn from it? Would you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. You could have beautiful feet. Hey, years ago, I used to be with a group called Jews for Jesus. You ever hear them? And I used to work the streets of Chicago. I'd wear a shirt. Jews for Jesus. And that is called a target. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a bullseye. So we'd be out there on the streets of Chicago. We'd hand out tracks. We called them broadsides because we made them big. Why? Because they're easier to put in someone's hand. You know, there's crowds of people coming. It can't be a little deal. It's got to be something that gets their attention real quick. Put it in their hand. I go, here you go. And we, you know, you go right for the hand. Here you go. You don't give them a chance to say no. Here you go. Here you go. That kind of deal. Well, this particular broadside said, you too can have beautiful feet. It was, we tried to get catchy. You know, beautiful feet. What are you talking about? And it was about, there's good news, there's good news, you know, and, and the one who brings it has beautiful feet. Well, there was a guy watching me for a long time, and I thought, oh, this guy's going to kill me. I don't, know what's, I don't know what's up. Finally comes over to me, and I say, that's it, it's over. He said, uh, so, he says to me, so uh, are you a podiatrist? I said, what? He said, yeah, like I've got an ingrown, and I was wondering if, I'm not lying to you. He asked me, what do you, what do you charge? Yeah. That was not a good track to hand out, but anyway. So whenever I, I read this verse, I think about that. Well, you're a podiatrist. Uh, I think you're missing the point here. <clears throat> you could have beautiful feet. You could have beautiful. So here's the deal. <clears throat> Nahum did not make the mistake of thinking the ultimate reality was what his eyes told him to be true. He realized the ultimate reality is the scene behind the scenes.
And the only way to see what's behind the scenes is that it be real, be revealed by God. It was to Nahum. And secondarily, it is through Nahum to us. Folks, there's a reality behind the scenes. That's the real reality. And the chaos, the unsettledness, which many of us are experiencing today, some psychologists call it existential depression. You know, you, you go to the counselor, how can I help you? I'm depressed. What are you depressed about? Everything. That's called existence. I'm depressed about existence, see? Existence. There's more anxiety disorders, more depression, more sleep disorders than ever before. It's a very, very rough day we live in. And it spares no one. <laughs> it's not a political party deal. It's not a racial. It's, every, it's everybody. The world is, you know, I, I mean, every moment. You, breaking news anymore. I mean, you live in dread of breaking news. Oh, for crying out loud. An explosion in West Texas. It took so many lives. What? <clears throat> that's what our eyes, those are realities, but there's a reality behind it all, an ultimate reality, but you can't see it unless it be revealed. The Bible is a book of revelation. What's revealed is almighty God is totally in control. Everything is on his time schedule. He can use the most grotesque and evil nation on earth. In that day, it was Assyria. I don't know what what they are today, whatever the equivalent is. He can use everyone to accomplish his purpose. And there's a separation in humankind. There are those who will experience the full outpouring of the wrath of God. And there are those who won't. Because the full outpouring of the wrath of God has fallen on the shoulders of his only begotten son on behalf of those who have put their faith in him. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the father's wrath on the shoulders of the son for you and for me. I don't expect to experience the wrath of God anymore. And that's why I let his perfect love cast out all fears. I'm a verse seven guy. Are you verse seven? The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. It's getting to be that, like that's every day. And what's more, he knows those who have it all together. He knows those who are sinlessly perfect. He knows those who make promises and vows. No, he knows those who take refuge in him. I hope you're a verse 7 person. It's one way or the other. Those who have the son have life. Those who do not, do not have life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Which is it? Don't reject Jesus Christ. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do it. Say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. I'm separated by sin. I can't build a bridge. You are the bridge between me and almighty God, your father. Come into me and change me from the inside. God of hope, give me hope. I'm hopeless right now. Give me peace. I'm without peace. Give me joy. I don't have it. Let me join in that future celebration, undistractedly fulfilling my vows, celebrating your presence forever. It's important, isn't it? This gospel of peace brought by the Lord Jesus will do one of two things. It will harden some hearts and soften others. Which is it for you? If you feel like your heart is being softened, you want to talk to someone. Do you know we work all through the week? It's not just Sunday. And we all have cool offices over here that you paid for. Thank you. I would love to occupy one with you. 
if you want to talk. And there are many others as well. This is important to us. This is important. This is important to God. Yeah, I know this. He died for you. You're important to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. Thank you for communicating to us. How else could we know you? Thank you for good news in the midst of bad news. And thank you for eyes to see. We believe these things. Oh, we don't all have to agree on the details. That's not the point. We believe you are high and lifted up. You are distressed by evil much more than we are. You can do things we cannot do. We believe we have your favor. We believe you will judge those who are corrupt and evil and have rejected you and oppress us. We believe there'll be a better day in which we will dwell with you eternally secure for eternity and we'll celebrate. We look forward to it. Until then, Lord Jesus, we have much to do. Would you give us your heart for lost people so that lost people could become saved people? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, name two next week. <laughs>